Well, I'd invite you to open in your copies of God's Word to the prophecy of Hosea, specifically Hosea chapter 3. Maybe a smaller book, you can find it just after Daniel. Hosea chapter 3. And you'll see that we're picking up uh, in the middle of a story a little bit this morning, so I think it'd be good for us to, to get our bearings I remember that Hosea was a prophet who was called by God to, to prophesy to the northern tribes in the divided kingdom of Israel. And at the time that Hosea prophesied to them, uh, the northern kingdom was enjoying a time uh, really of, of economic and military prosperity. Uh, but, but they were religiously bankrupt. They were syncretistic. They were trying to combine the worship of the Lord God with the, the Canaanite gods, Baal especially. And the Lord God called on Hosea to illustrate the relationship between God and the people of Israel by having him marry an adulterous woman named Gomer. And the image is that, that just as Gomer had chased and continued to chase after other lovers, Israel had consistently refused the overtures of God's love given to her by the prophets and had chased after Baal and, and the supposed blessings that Israel enjoyed from Baal. In Hosea, we, we see the pain and, and the dysfunction of Hosea's family in the first two chapters. But also we consistently see that God is unwilling to lose his people and that he continues to be faithful to his covenant, even as we just sang, and that he continues to make promises of a glorious restoration. And so with those thoughts in mind, give attention once more to God's word, Hosea chapter 3. God's word says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, and a homer and a lefek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Amen. This is God's word. And before we consider it, let's pray and ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word and so thankful that you have given it to your people. And God, by ourselves, perhaps we could understand sentences and, and understand some of the meanings of your word. But Lord, if it is to be uh, effectual in our lives, we need the help of your spirit. And so we pray, oh God, open our eyes so that we can behold uh, wonderful things in your law. For we pray it in Christ's name. Well, I think that everyone here, whether you would like to admit it or not, and I imagine that some of you, perhaps some of you young boys, not, might uh, not like to admit it. And I think that everyone here loves a good love story. We love a good love story. And what does every good love story need? It needs obstacles for the lovers to overcome. You might think of, of 
socioeconomic obstacles where we, we cheer for the poor stable hand to wind up with the wealthy princess. Or familial barriers where we cheer for true love to overcome uh, rivalries and strife between families. We can think of sort of behavioral barriers where, where we cheer for the protagonist to overcome his own or her own personal demons, realize their own personal goodness, and get the guy or the girl. But friends, I submit to you that we have no love stories like the one in our text. In the love stories that we write and that we imagine, I think that ultimately we're, we're cheering for someone good to end up with someone just as good. None of us would ever cheer for Belle to end up with Gaston. <laughs> None of us hope that Prince Charming winds up with one of Cinderella's evil stepsisters or that Elizabeth Bennet will find love with Mr. Collins. <laughs> no. No, we cheer for someone good and wonderful and beautiful to find someone good and wonderful and beautiful. Well, here in our text, we certainly have conflict. We, we have the lovely and the unlovely, the faithful husband and the adulterous bride, but we see that she has not a heart of gold, but a self-serving heart of stone. But friends, this, this is the love story of Scripture, that our loving and faithful God pursues the unlovely and calls them to himself in his grace. And so the call of Hosea 3 is that you would rejoice as you consider God's love for his wayward bride. Rejoice as you consider God's love for his wayward bride. And this morning we'll examine uh, three aspects, three aspects of God's love for his wayward bride. First, in verse 1, we'll consider God's love in pursuing his bride. Second, we'll consider God's love in redeeming his bride from verse 2. And then finally, verses 3 to 5, we'll rejoice as we consider God's love in restoring his bride. First, look with me at verse 1. You notice that we, we must consider, we must rejoice as we consider God's love in pursuing his bride. Verse 1 says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And first, I think that we should notice something of the condition of God's bride, the condition of God's bride. As we consider the condition of Gomer and, and of the nation of Israel, which Gomer illustrates, as we consider the, the condition of God's people in all ages, we see first that, that, that they are a people bent on backsliding. This is the language that God will use later on in the prophecy of Hosea. Hosea 11, verse 7, where he laments, My people are bent on backsliding from me. God sees his people. And he doesn't just see a people who have sinned, who have backslidden once, but he says they are bent on backsliding, bent on turning away from me. And we see this in our text. He says, God says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, by another lover. It's not just that they had committed adultery, but the image is that Gomer is in the act. She is away from Hosea in the act of being unfaithful. She had committed this sin. And and, and Hosea had, had called her to himself in his love, and then she committed it again. They are committing adultery, bent on backsliding. God says, verse 1, they turn to other gods 
they turn to other gods. Isn't that the first commandment? Isn't that the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Israel couldn't keep all ten, and they couldn't even keep the first one. We see a people bent on backsliding. Second, we, we see a people who are self-serving in their pursuits. A people self-serving in their pursuits. Our passage says that they turn to other gods and love the cakes of raisins. I think that this is probably a strange reference to us. This is a convicting chapter of God's Word, but I doubt that any of you were cut to the heart when you read about those cakes of raisins. It's a strange reference. I think that they probably represent the, the bounty of the earth. In chapter 2, verse 8, which we didn't read this morning, we, we see that Israel counted grain and oil and wine as payments for her illicit love affair with the gods of Canaan. And, and if you think of a cake of raisin, what do you need? Uh, you need flour from the grain and fat from the oil and raisins from the vineyards. It, it seems as if the people of God love the bounty of the earth. But, but we also, it also seems that, that these cakes were, were offered to foreign gods in, in really licentious worship uh, services, uh, worship ceremonies, which we can uh, piece together by references to these cakes of raisins, both in the Song of Songs and in Jeremiah chapter 7 and 44, where, where God laments that his people are offering uh, to the Queen of Heaven, a false god, these cakes of raisins. And so when God says that his people love the cakes of raisins, it, it seems as if he's saying, in effect, they, they love the fruit of the earth, they love the immoral worship of Canaan's gods, but they have forgotten me, the one who gave the fruit. They've forgotten me, the one true God. As we think about the condition of God's bride, we see a people who are self-serving in their pursuits. But also as we consider the condition of God's bride, both in the 8th century B.C., we see a people like ourselves. We see a people like ourselves. As we read the prophecy of Hosea, it's imperative that we remember that the persistent waywardness of Israel, it, it shouldn't be thought of by us as, as an unprecedented case of rebellion against God. We don't come to Hosea and think to ourselves, my, my oh my, how could things have gotten so bad? How could Israel have been so wicked? How could they have fallen so far? No, we see a picture of ourselves. One commentator, Derek Kidner, said the reader of Hosea may find himself confronted by a mirror rather than a window, since Israel's sin is also humanity in every man's. It reflects us. It's a mirror. It's not a window. It shows us our waywardness and our backsliding tendencies. And so as we consider that the sinfulness of Gomer as an individual, the, the sinfulness of the people of God in Israel, we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't fall into that self-righteous trap that David did. Do you remember Nathan the prophet comes to him, he confronts him with sin, and David is angry. It says in 2 Samuel 12, David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die. And of course, then the trap is sprung, and Nathan says, you missed the point. This is you. This is what you have done. And as we come to God's word this morning, 
it says to us, you are the man. You are the woman. And instead of being like self-righteous David, uh, we, we need to say with penitent David, Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God. Again, Derek Kidner comments, few of us, remembering the trivialities that we chase, will feel ready to cast the first stone at Israel. As we consider the condition of God's wayward people, we, we see ourselves bent on backsliding, selfish in our pursuits. This is the condition of God's bride. But second, as we think about God's love in, in pursuing his bride, we, we need to think about the commitment of our God. The commitment of our God. And notice first that our God is faithful in his love. Our God is faithful in his love. We read in verse 1, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. The waywardness of God's bride it is no hindrance to his love and steadfastness. He had sworn to love his people, and he was committed to fulfilling that love. God said that he loves his people, and when his people despise his love, our passage tells us, that he'll love them again. He says, go again. Our God is faithful to his love. Think of Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord appeared to me of old, saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Brothers and sisters, our, our passage offers us assurance that, that, our, though, that although our sins make a separation, God still loves. Although our sins uh, uh, make it at times such that God could describe his relationship with us as in the words of Hosea 2, 2, she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. God is still faithful to his promise, uh, faithful to call his people back and faithful to love them. Consider also that God is willing to pursue. God is willing to pursue as Hosea records what God called him to do, he starts with an imperative. It says, go. Hosea was to go and show love for Gomer. He was not to be passive, but he was to be active. I, I think it would have been an amazing expression of love if Hosea had said, I'm willing to receive Gomer back if she comes to me. If she comes and knocks on my door, I will open it and welcome her back into my home and show her forgiveness. But instead, Hosea, picturing God's love in miniature, he pursues his bride. He pursues, he goes. And how does God explain this parable? What does he say of this illustration? He says it's even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. God is willing to pursue and as we consider the commitment of our God, consider finally that God is not daunted by your sins. Brothers and sisters, God is not daunted by your sins. Hosea does not, God does not say to Hosea, uh, go again and check on Gomer. Uh, see how she's doing. And if she hasn't fallen too far, we'll see if there's something that we can do. No, God knows that his people have fallen into sin, even the same sins again and again. And he still says, Go again and love a woman. Brothers and sisters, the testimony of Scripture is that our God is long-suffering and gracious. He has committed himself to loving saints 
even saints with patterns of sin. Think about Abraham lying about Sarah being his wife, or David taking many wives, Jonah disobeying and arguing with the Lord, Peter rebuking and denying the Lord, Gomer and her idolatry, Israel in her idolatry, or you and me with our besetting sins. God is not daunted, but he pursues his people. Since becoming a father, uh, I've become increasingly familiar with a great piece of American literature. I think that you've probably heard of it. It's The Runaway Bunny. Boys and girls, I wonder if your parents have ever read to you from The Runaway Bunny. You remember what the little bunny said? He said, I'm going to run away. And what did the mother say? I'm going to miss you. No, the mother said, I'll run after you. The bunny says, I'll turn into a fish in a trout stream and I'll swim away, or I'll become a rock high up on a mountain, or I'll become a crocus, a, a flower hidden in a garden. And of course, the mother responds, if you become a fish in a, tree, in, in a stream, I'm going to become a fisherman, and I'm going to fish for you. If you become a rock high up on a mountain, I'm going to become a rock climber. I'm going to climb up and I'm going to get you. If you become a, a, a crocus hidden in a garden, I'm going to become a gardener. And I'll come and I'll find you. Boys and girls, there wasn't anything that little bunny could do to stop his mother from loving him, was there? And you know what? It's just like our God. And just like his pursuing love. There is nothing that God's people can do to stop him from loving and pursuing. Our passage is teaching us that there is no sin so powerful that God cannot save. Uh, no sin so serious that God cannot redeem. And certainly no, no sinner so heinous that our loving God and faithful husband will not pursue. And so as we consider God's love for his wayward people, it's fitting for us to begin by considering his pursuing love. His pursuing love. But our God, he not only pursues, and we'll turn to our second aspect of God's love where we'll consider God's love in redeeming his bride. Verse 2, consider God's love in redeeming his bride. We read in verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and Homer and Alephic of barley. So I bought her. We saw under our first heading that, that Gomer was idolatrous and self-serving and persistent in her sins. And here in verse 2, uh, we see into what condition her sins had brought her. Maybe to borrow the language of our catechism, we see Gomer's estate of sin and misery. Gomer had chased after other lovers. Israel had chased after other gods. And what was the result of these pursuits? Gomer seems to be indebted to the point of slavery. She's likely been abused and trafficked and treated with other, utter contempt by those around her, whether her clientele or those with whom she interacted in society. Here we see Gomer near the end of that path of sin, uh, that path that leads from the miseries of this life to death itself and outside of Christ to the pains of hell forever. Paul describes the condition of God's people outside of Christ as being slaves of sin. Slaves of sin, Romans 6:17, and as presenting ourselves as slaves of uncleanness and ungodliness. And Paul goes on in Romans 6 to ask a searching question. 
the 13 question. Romans 6.21, Paul asks, But what fruit were you getting at that time of the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And dear friends, Paul's question demands, What fruit have you got from sin? Has sin delivered on its promises even once? Has sin brought you anything other than a wounded conscience and loss of assurance and loss of joy and ruined relationships and broken fellowships and all manner of misery in this life? What fruit do you have for your sin? What is the fruit of sin? What is its payment other than discouragement and misery and death? The end of sin is death. And here in verse 2, we see that, that Gomer is on that sinful path that leads to death. But instead of reaping the fruit of her sin, we see Gomer's faithful husband loving her again. He buys her 15 shekels of silver and, and what many commentators say appears to be about 15 shekels worth of produce. That's 30 shekels in total. That's the price of a slave. Exodus 21:32. But I think that Hosea's love, it's, it's not seen so much in the price that he paid, but in the forgiveness that he showed. I wonder, can you imagine the scene? Here we have Hosea's love is pictured in the humiliating circumstances surrounding the redemption of his wife. This holy prophet of God goes into a brothel and he pays to redeem his own. It would have been humiliating and humbling. Perhaps he would have been mocked and scorned. Perhaps people would have mocked and scorned this holy prophet of God. But I think that this story, it's not ultimately about Hosea redeeming Gomer, is it? No, we can think about Christ's state of of humiliation. It's one thing for Hosea to go into a seedy part of town and to buy back his destitute wife. Certainly it a humiliating experience. But brothers and sisters, isn't it quite another thing? On a different plane of love altogether, for our Savior, who is altogether lovely, to enter our ugly and sin-sick world to redeem sinners like Gomer, like you, and like me. Our catechism asks the question, it says, wherein did Christ's state of humiliation consist? And it begins its answer with these words, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in the low condition, made under the law, undergoing the misery of this life. It consisted in his being born. Christ loved the church so much that he left the happiness and the glory of heaven to redeem us. He left his throne and his palace in the realms of glory and exchanged them for a manger and a livestock stall in the Judean backwaters. He left the perfect fellowship of the Trinity, the joy and the comfort of his Father's bosom, so that he could fellowship with a sinful people, bent on backsliding, covered from head to toe in wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Friends, we should marvel. We should marvel at the love of Christ expressed in the Incarnation. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, it says, Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
and while Hosea paid the price of a slave 30 shekels of silver, what did Christ say? Were you redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold? No, you were redeemed not by the blood of goats and goats. You were not redeemed for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers, or a homer and a lethic of barley. In our catechism's answer, it continues that Christ's state of humiliation also consisted in his undergoing the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Friends, Christ, he didn't pay the price of a slave to redeem. He paid his own precious blood. First Peter 1 tells us, You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Christ entered our world. He came down and he tabernacled with us, and he offered himself on the cross as payment for our sins. Philippians 2.8 And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ not only pursues and redeems his wayward bride, brothers and sisters, he humbles himself. Well, we've seen God's love in pursuing a people and God's love in redeeming a people. And I think that the question naturally arises, well, what next? What next? How will God live with this redeemed people? And we can be fearful and wonder to ourselves, can we expect bitterness at past sins? I wonder if any of you harbor that, that, that fear, that anxiety in the back of your mind, is God angry with me for past sins for which I've been forgiven? Can we expect uh, anger at the price that had to be paid? Or we can think to ourselves, can we expect a future falling away? Uh, can we expect that this redemption will only be temporary? We saw that Gomer fell back into sin. We've considered already that God's people are bent on backsliding, and so we can doubtingly think to ourselves, is that my future? Do I have a future falling away? Will I fall back into the sins from which I have been redeemed? Can I have any assurance? But brothers and sisters, uh, the testimony of Scripture is that God has not left us to wonder how he deals with his redeemed people. He has not left us to wonder. And so we'll turn and consider finally, we'll consider God's love in restoring his bride. God's love in restoring his bride from verses 3 to 5. God's love in restoring his bride. And, and we see in the first place uh, that God loves his bride and restores his bride by refining his bride through trials. He refines his bride through trials. God says to his people in verse 3, you must dwell as mine for many days. And this speaks of, of communion and of close fellowship with God. But we see in verse 4 that the context of this renewed fellowship is actually exile. God says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. <coughs> Excuse me. In this, this list, it represents aspects of, of Israel's political and religious life and identity that God was going to take away through exile. But no, friends, God was gracious. You need to know that God was gracious in taking these things away. Uh, the sacred pillar and the household gods, these were manifestations of, of Israel's idolatrous worship practices where they thought to worship the Lord God 
and the gods of Canaan, and God was gracious to take those things away. But, but even things in this list that, that may seem and appear to be good, we need to know that it was gracious for God to take away. For God to take away the king and the prince. It is for God to remove the rebellious rulers of the northern tribes and to make a path back for following his appointed line, the Davidic monarchy. Uh, for God to take away the, the sacrifices and the ephod of the northern priests, to take away um, those things. That's for God to remove the illegitimate priesthood that, that King Jeroboam I had set up. Remember, he set up altars in, in Bethel and in Dan so that they wouldn't go down to Jerusalem. He set up his own priesthood. And so God is saying, I'm going to take away these false uh, manifestations of worship. These things may seem to us to be good and righteous, but they were tainted by sin and, and of a combining of the worship of God with the worship of Baal. And so for God to take away these things is gracious and it is refining. Make no mistake, though, the, the exile of the northern about it in Second Kings. But God is showing that it will be refining and restored. God re refines his people through trials. Notice also that we see that God restores his people by rekindling their love. God restores his people by rekindling their love. We read in verse 5, it says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. In, in chapter 2, God had promised to allure Israel and to call her back to himself. And I think in verse 5, we see that one of the ways that God allures his people is by making his anointed king lovely in their sight. Remember, the northern tribes had rejected the Davidic line. They had said, what portion have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. But God is saying that he'll make them return and seek the Lord, their God, and David, their king. What an amazing thing. Thus far, we have seen that Israel was self-serving in her pursuits. She had sought her own pleasure and her own satisfaction. Hosea 2.5 says that she was seeking my lovers and my bread and my water and my wool, my linen, my drink. And now she wants her God. She says, I want my God. I want David, my king. Brothers and sisters, by the time that Hosea is prophesying, David had been dead for centuries. They were not seeking a long dead king. No, the afterword in verse 5, it's future looking. The latter days in verse 5 speak of the years of our Lord. We, we see installments of this returning to the Lord fulfilled in the New Testament era. Uh, we see it fulfilled at Pentecost when 3,000 of our Lord's countrymen were converted and placed their hope in David's greater son. You know, we see it fulfilled as the gospel of Christ, who is a light to the Gentiles, is proclaimed among the nations, and a people from every tribe and tongue and nation come and put their hope and their trust and their love in the God of Abraham. And we look for it to be fulfilled in still greater measure as the fullness of the, of the elect come to seek the Lord their God and David their king. We look for the fullness of the Gentiles to be called in and we anticipate the, the fullness of the Jews being called back. 
And what's the final estate of God's people? How does he deal with this restored people who have come to seek the Lord their God and David their king? Verse 5 tells us, And they shall fear the Lord in his goodness in the latter days. As we consider our God who pursues and who redeems and who restores, we see his goodness and we fear. Uh, This is not a servile fear of punishment, but it speaks rather of our awe-struck response to God's redeeming goodness. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is good and does good. And when we see and experience his goodness, we offer heartfelt worship to our God. Well, we've considered this third chapter of Hosea. We've seen a wayward bride and and the effects of her sin. It hasn't always been pretty, has it? My wife and I, we don't live in the greatest neighborhood in Pittsburgh. And certainly if you went down the road a few miles from our apartment, you'd be in some of the more downtrodden areas of the city. It's by no means common. Uh, but it's not altogether unprecedented to, to see women who seem to be in Gomer's line of work. And it's heartbreaking. You see an image bearer who's been trafficked and has gotten mistreated and it's heartbreaking. God says this is the image of his people, but they, they've sought it. They've pursued it. This is the image of a people bent on backsliding away from God. What a contrast then with another picture of God's people that we have in Scripture, the picture of a bride on her wedding day. We say, how, how can this become this? How can the unlovely become lovely? But friends, the, the message of Hosea chapter 3 is that despite our sins and our desperate condition, God pursues. And despite our waywardness, God enters our world of sin and misery and he redeems And he does not leave us as dirty, wounded sinners, but he restores us. Ephesians 5.25, well-known words, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might become holy and without blemish. No doubt, brothers and sisters, as you look at your own heart, as you look at the church, you see spots and wrinkles. And but the testimony of Scripture is that Christ is so working in his wayward, backsliding people that, that one day a multitude of pursued and redeemed and restored sinners will say, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice in him and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Has made us all ready. And one day it will be said of them, and to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine, clean amendment. The fine linen is the righteous act of repentance. And brothers and sisters, that's gospel transformation. And certainly that's cause to rejoice as you consider God's love for his wayward Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Our Heavenly Father and our God, how we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is honest with us, that it shows us our sin. But we thank you more than that, that it, that it shows us the redemption that you have won for us in Christ. We praise and we thank you, Christ, that you love the unlovely. God, I pray 
for, for this congregation, that you would be building them up in holiness and in sanctification. I pray for the individual members of this congregation, from the oldest saint to the youngest little boy who we saw baptized today, that you would be active in their lives, growing them in holiness. God, if there are any here this morning who are outside of Christ, who have not trusted in, in the Son of David, would you make him lovely in their sight? Help them to see their sin and, 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 its, and its fruit and its end, and help them to see the redemption that is available to them in Christ. God, hear our prayers and accept our worship, for we offer it in Christ's name. Amen.